If you wish to become a complete and wise leader, you must embrace a larger view of the force. Welcome, everyone. My name is Devorn. You are listening to episode 29 of A Larger View of the Force, a Star Wars podcast. A reminder, as always, check out the earlier episodes of this show if you're new here, and make sure to subscribe to keep up with new episodes of the show as they come out. On today's episode, I'm talking Star Wars planets. There's a lot of them. So I'm going to give my ranking of my 10 favorite planets in Star Wars. So just a little bit about how I kind of came up with this list before I just dive right into it. So I sort of had two broad criteria of things that I was looking at in kind of deciding which planets made the list and then how they ultimately ranked out. On the one hand, there's the what I'm basically calling aesthetics. So what does the planet look like? How cool looking is it? What's the environment like? So on and so forth. Those kind of qualities to it, the kind of eye candy appeal of the planet. That was a big part of it. But then also another important part of it is story. So not just the planet itself and how much I might like the look of it and so on, but also what happens on there. What important events take place? What place does this particular planet occupy in the story of Star Wars? And so both of those factors kind of went into putting together this list, and they weigh differently depending on the planet. So in certain cases, aesthetics may weigh a lot where the planet, let's say, may not have a lot of time in Star Wars. Like we might not have spent a lot of time there, and there may not be a lot of story Versus on the flip side, there are certain circumstances where, let's say, the planet may not be much to look at or may not be a particular planet that you ever want to visit or live on or would be particularly dangerous to be on, but it has a lot of story import, and so that really weighs in its favor. So for different planets on this list, the balance of the extent to which aesthetics versus story factored in will vary, and I'll sort of talk about that a little bit as I talk about each planet. But that's really all the context I need for this. I'm just going to dive right into the list, starting with number 10. Scarif. Scarif has a lot going for it in the aesthetic criteria. I mean, you know, in terms of story, we really only have it in Rogue One that I'm aware of. Again, if there's some Booker comic series where there's more on Scarif than that I'm ignorant of, then I will plead ignorance of that. But I think for the most part, what we know of Scarif is restricted to Rogue One. But it is a really beautiful planet, and it's a great setting for the third act of that movie. It's very lush. You know, we hadn't really seen, again, at least to my knowledge, there may be planets that I'm less familiar with or things out of Legends or something like that. We hadn't really seen a tropical planet in Star Wars up to this point, or at least one as prominent. Like There's maybe like Felucia, if you think about that, from the prequels. 
But other than that, we really haven't had that. You know, we had forest planets. We've had some jungle planets. We have desert planets. But in terms of that beachy environment, Scarif, I think, really kind of stands out there. And I just think the whole look of it where at least the part of Scarif that we get to see in Rogue One where the Imperial data center is in this kind of island, it really is almost the kind of it's almost a kind of planet version of a villain hideaway from like a James Bond movie where like the villain has the the island that's off the map kind of off in the distance and it's very beautiful and lush and all that basically Scarif feels like if you took that and turned it into a planet it's really really got that feel and I really like that like the whole base the way that it looks where it has the basically the tram or whatever that leads from the landing pad up to the main complex and then of course the massive tower and you've got the the radar dish on the top and also just the planetary shield itself i think is a really really cool design where you've got this this one ring that everybody goes into and out of and it kind of envelops the entire planet i think that's a really really cool aesthetic there so i really yeah i really really like i think it is very you know, I mean, in terms of the Galactic Empire, it's maybe a little more showy, a little bit more flashy aesthetically, again, than we're typically used to with the Empire, which is very drab and Spartan and utilitarian. But I still really, really like it as a location. I think it really fits, again, because it has that villain layer feel to it. And then, of course, you know, I've been talking a lot about the the aesthetics of Scarif, but then, of course, to give it some credit in terms of story, I love everything that happens in that final act of Rogue One, both on the ground and then also above Scarif. You know, the Battle of Scarif is one of my favorite space battles in all of Star Wars. And just everything that we see on the ground with the Rogue One team infiltrating the facility and then everything with transmitting the Death Star plans and all of that is yeah it's 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 really compelling it's it does occupy a really important place in star wars even if we don't get to spend a lot of time on scarif the things that happen there are really really important to the story yeah that's what i'm going to say about that because i may or may not be talking more about scarif in a future upcoming episode so i will leave any and all other thoughts that I have about the final act of that movie for that possible episode. So I'm just going to leave you with that. But yeah, number 10, The Planet Scarif. Moving on now to number 9. Dagobah. Originally, when I was coming up with this list, I had both Octo and Dagobah on the list, somewhere right around this part, somewhere in the, in the kind of middle of the list. And ultimately, I decided largely for diversity's sake, for getting many different types of planets, I really only wanted to have one planet because they are very, I mean, not aesthetically, of course, they're quite different because Dagobah is a swamp planet versus Octo, which is more kind of coastal and temperate. I don't know how else you want to describe it. So they're kind of different in that way, but in terms of the story place that they occupy with our Jedi hero going to this place where this master has hidden themselves away and they're training, because they're kind of similar in that respect, I ultimately decided that I only really wanted one 
to talk about because if I had both of them on, then I'd basically be telling the same story between them. And so I was kind of deciding between them. And then ultimately I decided to go with Dagobah. Maybe just out of familiarity, we just have so much with Dagobah and we're so familiar with it. And it just has this very storied place in Star Wars versus Octo, which is is obviously important too. But we haven't spent as much time with it as we have with Dagobah. So yeah, I decided to go with Dagobah for the number nine slot. Dagobah is really interesting as a place, as a setting, above and beyond what happens there. Of course, I'll talk about what happens there. I think one of the things that the setting and environment does really well in terms of playing into the story is that it really reinforces the mystery of Yoda because we're introduced to him first by Force Ghost Obi-Wan, who says, go to Dagobah, there you will find Yoda, the Jedi Master who instructed me. So there's this air like, okay, here's this, this Jedi who is even more wizened and seasoned than... Obi-Wan, and of course, we don't know what he looks like. And then Luke gets to the planet Dagobah, and it's this swamp world. There's no cities or technology or anything like that. So it's this kind of off-the-beaten-path planet. And so I think in that way, it adds for the question, like, who is this person, Yoda, that Luke is supposed to find? What is he doing out here on this very remote, very primitive backwater so i think it kind of feeds into some of that about who is this yoda what what is his deal and such before we get to meet him and find out who he is and then i think another thing that dagobah really does that's interesting sort of touching into big star wars themes and this is actually something that's going to come up with a couple of different planets on this list that i'll talk about so this is something that's going to keep coming up as a kind of recurring motif in this episode is that dagobah i think really reinforces this nature technology dichotomy in star wars which comes up again and again and again and i talked a little bit about this in the preceding two episodes in the context of talking about star wars visions where it came up there but it's it's one of these repeating themes throughout star wars and i think it's illustrated here as well because we see this master of the light side the grand master yoda and he's living on this planet he's hiding on this planet that's just teeming with life that's incredibly dense there's no cities there's no technology there's no urbanization there's none of that. it's all nature and there's a real contrast between that and let's say the empire which is very cold, which is very mechanical. They're all on these ships. Vader is this more machine than man in this suit. We don't know it at the time because it wasn't really part of the story. But if you think about at the same time, if you take something like the Emperor, where is he? He's based out in Coruscant. Coruscant being this entirely urbanized, industrialized planet where nature has been completely stripped away. So it's this really interesting contrast, and I think it is symbolic of the differences between the light side and the dark in that way. So I think that's really, really interesting. (laughs) One thing that I've always wondered about uh, Dagobah is, because of course there's this enduring mystery about Yoda and Yoda species, and that's now continued with Grogu, where we've only really seen three members of this species. You've got Yoda, Yaddle, and now Grogu, and we don't really know much about them. We don't know about 
even the name of the species. We don't know where they come from. I remember thinking about this. It'd be jokingly, but it would also be an excellent troll move if they ever did this. Back when, I remember at the end of season one of Mandalorian, when there was still the question of, we didn't have gotten the mission about reuniting Grogu with his own kind. And there was a question, oh, is he talking about Jedi or about the Yoda people? And I thought to myself, what if it turned out one day that Dagobah was the Yoda planet? Like he, this guy just, he, all he did was he just returned home and this is the origin planet of his species and Yoda is just, Maybe there's more somewhere else on another part of the planet, but then it's just Yoda living by himself in this particular part of Dagobah. Again, I, I, I doubt that will ever be the case, but it was something that just kind of <laughs> I, th- I thought about and gave me a laugh. If that turned out to be one day the case that, I mean, certainly it looks like Yoda does come from Dagobah in terms of his appearance and such. But that would be funny if we did one day learn that Dagobah is the Yoda planet. But anyway. I mean, the other thing that we see with Dagobah, and this kind of goes back to the point I was talking about a few minutes ago about the nature and technology dichotomy is that in part, I think, because it is so teeming with nature, that Dagobah as a planet has a very strong connection to the Force, both the light side and the dark in really important ways. So... In season six of the Clone Wars and the Lost Missions, we get to see Yoda in that arc. He goes to Dagobah as part of the process of trying to learn about gaining more immortality and preserving consciousness after death. So he goes to Dagobah and he actually sees the spirit of Qui-Gon Jinn and he communes with him there. So we already get a sense there in Clone Wars that Dagobah is this place with a particular where the force is particularly strong. And then we also have, of course, famously, the dark side cave, this well of darkness there. So again, in that same Yoda arc in the Clone Wars, we see Yoda enter it, and he has visions of Order 66 of the Jedi fighting clone troopers, and then also of Darth Sidious. Most prominently in Empire, we get to see Luke going into the dark side cave. And he confronts and fights Darth Vader, but then it turns out after he decapitates him and the helmet blows off, it turns out to be himself. And then we get to see it again in the sequel trilogy era period in the Rise of Kylo Ren comic, where Kylo and Snoke go to Dagobah, and Kylo goes in, and he fights this apparition of Luke and manages to kill him, but then he sees Han and Leia, and he can't kill them, and so he then responds by destroying the cave in an attempt to cover up the fact that he wasn't able to kill them and go through with it. So the Dark Side Cave is this really, really interesting place. It's the site of confrontation. You know, there's that exchange that Luke and Yoda have where Luke asks Yoda, what, what's in there? And then Yoda replies, only what you take with you. So that notion of the cave as being this place that reflects back at you struggles and thoughts and fears and anxieties that you have within that happens in all three of the cases with Yoda, with Luke and Kylo, where you are made to confront some form of your innermost thoughts and fears taking a kind of spectral shape. That, I think, makes it a really, really compelling place. 
And then, of course, once again, all the things that happen on Dagobah in all the different periods and stars that we talked about. We just talked about some of them in the prequel period with the Yoda arc, a little bit with the rise of Kylo Ren. And then, of course, everything that happens in Empire and Jedi with Luke's training, the whole opening scene when he gets introduced to Yoda, my favorite character introduction in Star Wars is Yoda because I just love him fucking around with Luke. Like that, that is an endless source of entertainment. I enjoy it every time. And then Luke training, learning more about the nature of the Force, Yoda lifting the X-Wing out of the swamp, that whole scene. I talked a lot about that way in the beginning of the show when I did my Yoda and Greek philosophy episode. So go listen to that one if you want to hear me riff on that at length. And then the scene in Jedi in Return of the Jedi when he goes back and they have that conversation about Vader and about Luke being a Jedi and what he needs to do and all that. So Dagobah is just really, really important in terms of the story for a number of different characters. It's this place of learning. It's this place where different characters learn more about the Force. They learn more about themselves. They are made to confront some of their inner struggles. So it's really, really important in that way in terms of developing a lot of different characters. So moving on now to number eight. Camino. Camino's got a lot going on. Camino is one of these planets that we've just learned more and more about as the years have gone on. I don't know how much more we will learn about it. We may have seen the end of Camino's story, but we may not have. Who knows? We we will find out. I like how when we were first introduced to Camino in Attack of the Clones, it's got this air of mystery around it. Again, a little bit like Dagobah in Empire. We learn, you know, Dex tells us that it's beyond the outer rim. He talks about how the Kaminoans kind of keep to themselves. Of course, there's the whole thing about how Kamino has been removed from the Jedi records. And I don't, this is not the place to really go into this. I don't totally like how Kamino works into the story, particularly of Attack of the Clones. I don't know that it makes particularly much sense. I think there's a lot of... There's a, lot, there's a lot about the plot of Attack of the Clones and a lot of the stuff around Camino and the missing planet that just like, if you start thinking about it, you're like, okay, why if the whole scheme of Sidious and Dooku to create this clone army that the Republic was going to get and then eventually have the clones turn on the Jedi, why do you put them on the planet that you need like Jack Sparrow's compass from Pirates of the Caribbean to find? It's an island that cannot be found except... By those who already know where it is. Yeah, there, there's, you know, there's a whole, again, I'm going on a tangent here, but it's fine. Ever since the sequel trilogy and all the, all the plan discourse around the sequel trilogy, was there a plan? Wasn't there? Should there have been? There's been a lot of kind of backwards hagiography about the prequel trilogy where people look back on it and they're like, well, look at that. You had George Lucas and you had the singular vision. And on the one hand, yeah, sure. But then also, if, if you treat the prequel trilogy as just the three films and you don't kind of backfill in Clone Wars and other stuff, there's, there's stuff that doesn't add up. It, it doesn't fit well together. And Camino's kind of in there. There's there's a lot of questions about, like, does this plot totally make sense? But that's a a whole digression, and I won't get into that because that's not – this is not the place for it. But anyway, yeah. So it has this 
this mystery around. It's not, it's not a planet that people know about. It's kind of out in the frontier. And then, of course, when we get there and Obi-Wan gets there, the environment there further reinforces that. Again, kind of like Dagobah. You have – it's, of course, very stormy. There's all the rain. Everything's on platforms. Everybody is living above this massive roiling planetary ocean. So you have all of that. So that's adding further to this Camino as this strange place and like what's going on here. Because again, it was a planet we've never seen anything like it in Star Wars up to this point. And again, to go back to that idea that I was talking about with Dagobah about the nature technology dichotomy, I think there's a little bit of that happening with Camino too. I think it's also playing with it there. We have this planet where, on the one hand, nature is kind of raging everywhere. You have these huge storms and it's raining all the time and all that. And then on these little islands, these artificial technological islands, these platforms that have been erected, you have all of these scientific endeavors taking place. You have cloning happening. You have a whole army with troops and with ships and all that being stored, surrounded, enveloped by this very violent environment and very violent nature. So I think that contrast there, Camino kind of leans into it there, kind of putting them side by side in that way. And then I think adding on top of all that, I think it also are the Caminoans themselves. You know, one of the things that people like to bring up with Star Wars all the time and emphasize, you'll see it every now and then, is that Star Wars isn't science fiction, it's science fantasy or space fantasy, however you want to describe it. And that's true. But I think that Camino and the Caminoans are one of those places that, at least particularly with the movies, I know this, the old expanded universe kind of did a lot of this too. The Camino is one of these places where Star Wars does actually really kind of lean into the sci-fi element. As even if you look at the Caminoans, like they look a lot like conventional aliens when you think about the greys with like the big bulbous heads and all that. The Caminoans look a lot like that. They kind of look like elongated versions of extraterrestrials as we kind of conventionally know them in culture. And then, of course, the facility themselves, it's very brightly lit and you've got the... <laughs> You've got the big spoon chairs and, of course, all the cloning and all that. So it's very sci-fi. It really kind of leans hard into that in all its aspects, I think. So, yeah, those are all things that I really, really like about Camino. And then that's what was really coming out of Attack of the Clones. And then when we get into the Clone Wars, the Clone Wars really expands our understanding of Camino. And Bad Batch does this, too. I mean, we should emphasize that. Also, that it really shifts the way that we look at and think about Camino because we get to spend more time not with the Camino wins or with, let's say, the Jedi and such, but with actually the clones themselves, the, the people who call Camino home. And in that way, I think the way that we think about and look at Camino kind of shifts. It changes from essentially what it is in Attack of the Clones, which is this sterile people factory. <laughs> It's essentially this factory that manufactures human beings, and it really becomes a home. We get to see where the clones eat. We get to see where they sleep. We get to see where they train, all the stuff with Domino Squad and the ARC Troopers and 99 and all that. 
we get to see the clones defending their home and we have the whole attack on Camino by the separatists and all that happens. And then the bad batch adds more to this where we get to see Omega and we see where the bad batch are born and all the, you know, the great cafeteria food fight scene. And we get to see where the bad batch live and all that. So Camino in that way changes. We get to see these people who have a affectionate attachment to this place for whom Camino is home. And I think that adds layers to it and I think makes its ultimate destruction that we see at the end of season one of the Bad Batch all the more poignant because it isn't just this factory anymore. When we get those shots, that montage in the penultimate episode of season one where you see the empty tubes for the babies and... You see the empty cafeteria and all that. It really, you really do feel the emptiness because we got to spend so much time seeing the clones living there and all the experiences they had. And now all of a sudden it feels barren because there's all of these stories and memories attached to it. And that makes its ultimate destruction by the empire all the more poignant. And then of course that, that final scene at the end of season one where the Bad Batch are all on the platform and the rain has finally stopped and you get the Camino sunrise that's symbolizing this kind of turn, this change in what Camino once was. Because again, this is again not the place to do it, but sunrise and sets were this important motif in Star Wars and it's symbolizing these moments of change for certain characters. And that kind of happens here too, where once the storm lets out and you see the sun, it is signaling that our characters are now entering a new phase of their story now that their home has been destroyed. So yeah, Camino is one of these places where it's really a kind of testament to the power that Star Wars canon outside the movie has done to really flesh out these places and to give them greater significance and have a greater attachment to it. And we're going to see that also with some of the other planets further on on this list. But yeah, that is Camino in the eighth spot. So moving on now to number seven. Geonosis. So this is not something I've actually really talked much, if at all, on the show. Not that I can remember. You know, it, it, it's funny. There's there's certain circumstances where, as a Star Wars fan, there's certain pockets of your fandom that, for one reason or another, you don't really ever get to express all that much because there's just never the context. I mean, you could just bring it up, but you don't ever feel like it's appropriate or whatever. I, I don't know. This is one of the case here, which is that I really love Geonosis, and I particularly love the Geonosians. In fact, I would go so far as to say that I think the Geonosians are my favorite species in Star Wars. I think they're really, really cool, both the native inhabitants and then also the planet itself. You know, Geonosis is, again, like Dagobah, like Camino, it is yet another mystery planet when we're first introduced to an attack of the clones. When Obi-Wan arrives, you have this whole air of what's going on here. You see all of the Separatists, the Federation ships. We see Obi-Wan lurking around, and he sees all the the head honchos of the Separatist Alliance meeting there. And so there's a question of, oh, there's all this stuff happening, all these machinations happening on Geonosis. 
even though it's kind of similar to Camino in that way, these are both kind of factory planets. You've got Camino on the one hand as this factory site for the Republic clone army, and then Geonosis as this factory site for the Separatist army. There is an important contrast to them, which is that when you look at Camino, we see there, Camino has this very kind of artificial element, right? I mean, you've got the, you've got the roiling ocean, but then you've got this, these facilities where the cloning and such is taking place where the Caminoans actually live that is purely technological versus Genosians being 100% natural. When you see where the Genosians live and all that, it's very earthy. It's very insectoid. It's these spiraling structures. Really kind of taking inspiration from real world bugs and insects. It's got this kind of ant colony feel to it. Everything seems to be kind of coming out of the earth or carved from the earth. I love the look of the Geonosians themselves. You know, I like how they kind of live in these catacombs. We see that scene when Anakin and Padme are entering the droid factory and they're all kind of hidden in the walls. I like that aspect to it. I particularly like Pog the Lesser. I think he's a great design with his little like beard tendrils or whatever you want to call him. So yeah, I really, really like the look of the Genosians and their environment and where they work. And again, to go back to that nature technology dichotomy, the fact that you've got this very, very natural species that kind of live off of and in the earth, and they're these bug people. But then they all happen to be really, really good with building weapons and battle droids and even planet-destroying space stations. Again, kind of setting up that dichotomy there of nature and technology, I think, is really, really interesting. And then I think there's so much great story that happens on Geonosis, of course, in Attack of the Clones, you get all the great stuff that happens in the Petronaki Arena and the actual Battle of Geonosis that happens outside of it, the first major confrontation of the Clone Wars. And really, I've enjoyed every time that we have returned to Geonosis in Star Wars Canada. It's always been a blast. You know, we get it in the second season of the Clone Wars. When we go back and we see further fighting and they go underground, we find the Genosian Queen, and we get that whole arc with the brain parasites, which I know some people don't really like it because it does lean hard into the kind of horror element, but I do really enjoy that early Clone Wars stuff. And then, of course, in Rebels, we get the Ghosts of Genosis two-parter in the middle of Season 3. I love that. Again, once again, there we get to see Genosis become this mystery planet because it's all question of, okay, what the Empire was doing something here. All the Genosians have been wiped out. What happened? Why did they decide to, to genocide an entire species? So there's all that, again, reinforcing that mystery and that whole story there with Click Clack and the Last Egg and with Saw Gerrera and all that. I think it's a really, really good set of episodes in Rebels there. And... <laughs> Because I was watching that recently at the time of this recording, I've been rewatching Rebels and got through that. And I thought, I think about like Ghost of Genosis ends really on this kind of hopeful note where, you know, they let Click Clack go and he kind of goes in and he has this last egg. And it's like, oh, like here's this last hope of the species and he's going to be able to rebuild his people. And then, <laughs> then you get the Vader comics and he just like shows up and like massacres all of them again. It's like, oh, the poor Genosians. And um, yeah, I sort of alluded to this already, but of course, the other significance of 
Geonosis and the Geonosians is the connection to the Death Star, which we get to see at the end of Attack of the Clones. And then the Geonosians are involved in the construction, the initial construction of the Death Star. There's a little bit of that in the novel Catalyst, which is really, really good. And then they are ultimately destroyed in order to keep the project a secret. And so that's where we kind of pick up things in the story with Rebels. So, yeah. Really, really love Geonosis. I always enjoy any time a Star Wars story takes us back there because, yeah, it's a really cool place and and the Geonosians are, are pretty cool themselves. So, All right, so that is Geonosis, number seven. So now moving on to number six. Mustafar. So Mustafar, we are, of course, first introduced to in Revenge of the Sith as the hideaway for the Separatist Council in the waning days of the Clone Wars. You know, some people have said, basically ever since Revenge of the Sith first came out, that Mustafar is this hellish place, is this kind of embodiment of this kind of stand-in for hell is maybe a little too on the nose where you've got the lava plant and you've got the smoke and the ash and all that. I personally love it. Like it's not, it's not too much for me. I, I, you know, respect the for, for other people it may be different, but I enjoy, I really, really like the look of Mustafar. I like its aesthetics. Once again, much like with Scarif, it's got very bad guy layer vibes. It's got that feel of, you know, if you've got the trope of the villain with the secret island hidden away, then there's also the trope of the villain who has the mountain or volcano layer. And I think Mustafar kind of leans into that as being this hideaway for the Separatists. I, I like the the indigenous population there that we get to see a little bit of in Revenge of the Sith that's basically mining the lava. There are these kind of like bug-like, almost kind of like anteater-like population there. You get to see a little bit of them there. And then, you know, once again, all of the events that take place on Mustafar with Anakin showing up there and massacring the Separatist Council and kind of bringing an end to the Clone Wars. And then the duel between him and Obi-Wan and his transformation into Darth Vader as we know him. It kind of, of course, plays a really, really important role there at the end of Revenge of the Sith, and you know, even beyond Revenge of the Sith, I really enjoy what we've gotten to see in the last couple of years, particularly in the Disney era of Star Wars, the way that Mustafar is kind of transformed into Planet Vader. I really like the connection that has been reinforced between the planet and that character. I mean, we get to see it, of course, in Rogue One, when we see Vader's castle for the first time and Krennic shows up there. There's a lot of it in the Vader comics. The Vader comics have Vader going back to Mustafar over and over again. It's this place where he's constantly having to confront his demons and his past and deal with a lot of his guilt and anger. So the comics, they have really, really fleshed out Vader's connection to this place. The fact that he decides to build his castle in this place where he had this really traumatic loss and defeat where he was wounded so grievously again kind of symbolizing vader stewing in his hatred and anger and not being able to move on and then 
you've got like the Vader Immortal game where there's the whole story of him using the dark side on the planet like it's got this kind of dark side well again a la the the dark side cave on dagobah and he's kind of using he's trying to use the dark side there to bring back padme there's that whole story there we get to see we don't actually go there in rebels per se on the planet but we're just above it at the end of season one and fire across the galaxy where we get to see how mustafar has acquired this reputation where hera talks about how kanan is told that mustafar is this place where jedi go to die we see it again it's not there we spend no time on it there but in fallen order we get to see Nur, which is the moon of mustafar and that's the location of the fortress where the inquisitors are so again, kind of adding to some of that story and the significance of Mustafar, its its connection to the dark side and to the Sith, and all the kind of lore and history that we learn about Mustafar through those. So there's a whole story about how I mean, this is some of this has gotten into in particularly in the Vader Immortal game, and then also in some of the comics about how Mustafar came to be what it is. How did it get its hellish appearance? Where there's a whole story about this woman named Lady Corvax who used this artifact that was called the Bright Star to try and bring her husband back from the dead and it didn't work, but instead it kind of unleashed all of this energy that ended up ruining the planet that Mustafar at one point was very lush. But then because of this force that got brought to bear on it, it ended up destroying the environment and turning it into this barren, desolate landscape. And... Then later on, kind of in the period of Star Wars, as you know, in kind of the original trilogy period, the this artifact, the Bright Star, is destroyed, and then the planet subsequently starts healing. And so it kind of starts changing its appearance, which we get to see a little bit later on in The Rise of Skywalker, when we go back to Mustafar. It's a bummer that it wasn't more emphasized in the movie that that is Mustafar. You know, when you first see it, when, when you get that planet shot of it, I remember watching Rise of Skywalker for the first time and thinking, like, is that Mustafar? But then they do the shot on the surface of the Kylo Ren there, and I was like, oh, that doesn't look like Mustafar, as we know it from Revenge of the Sith, because I didn't know the all the lore. But, uh, yeah, it would have been great if we'd actually know, and if they maybe had, like, a little title card like they did in Rogue One to tell us that is, in fact, Mustafar, because I think that went over a lot of people's heads. And so anyway, yeah, we get to see it in that opening sequence where Kylo goes back there. He fights off these, essentially these cultists who sort of worship Vader. And then he goes to find Vader's Wayfinder. And of course, as a lot of people know, and this is in the, in the Rise of Skywalker novelization, Kylo was supposed to confront an entity that is essentially the guardian of the Wayfinder, known as the Eye of Webbish Bog, which is basically this spider thing that sits atop of the head of this giant, kind of lives in the swamp. And they were supposed to have this whole conversation, and that all got cut from the movie, even though they had a whole thing where they actually made the Eye of Webbish Bog. We've gotten it back in the Vader comics, but we really should have had it in the movie. I really wish... Even if we can just see that deleted scene. We don't have any of the deleted scenes from Rise of Skywalker, but yeah, that totally should have been. That would have been really cool. I, I love weird Star Wars, and Eye of Webbish Bog is right up there. So yeah, you know, I talked a, a few minutes ago about the ways that extra canon materials flesh out these places that we meet in the movies. I think Mustafar is one of, if not my favorite examples of that happening. I think we've learned so much about Mustafar 
from all of these different things, whether it's the comics, whether it's TV shows, whether it's video games, it's made it such an important place and it's given it such a history and lore and it's given us this really important connection between this planet and some of the most important characters in star wars so i think for that reason the way it's become embedded in the story is one of the reasons why mustafar is on this list i think it's i think it's been used really really well through a variety of different media in star wars so yeah all right so that is that is the bottom half of this list. So now we are moving into the top five Star Wars planets, starting with number five. Naboo. What can you say about Naboo? Naboo, for me, Naboo is, it is the quintessential prequel planet. Like we, when you think Star Wars prequels, you just think Naboo. It's the first place, of course, that we see. Like, I just think about, I think about those shots from the trailers of the Phantom Menace, where, what is the very first thing that we see in the teaser trailer for Phantom Menace? It's that shot of the Gungans coming out of the swamp, and there's all the, the fog around them. Those great shots of the Federation ships over Theed, of Queen Amidala inside her palace. It's just, yeah, it's so... It's so connected with the prequels in a way that even a lot of the other planets that we are introduced to for the first time in the prequels really aren't to that same degree in terms of like, what is the first thing you think about when you think about the prequels? Like you think about Naboo. It's just, yeah, it's, it, it just associated so strongly in my head with those movies. And once again, and this is a recurring theme on this list, I think Naboo is another example of this nature-technology dichotomy, particularly in The Phantom Menace. I think that we are made to see those two confront one another, where you have, you know, you have on the one hand the Trade Federation, and that's very mechanical. You've got the battle droids, you've got the ships engaged in the blockade, you've got the tanks and all that, and then you've got the Naboo. You've got on the one hand the, the humans on the surface. And even also the Gungans living in the water. And they have much more of a connection with nature. It's very Mediterranean. There's this kind of harmony with it. If you think about the weapons that the Gungans use or where they live, again, it's this kind of communing with nature versus this very technological enemy. Even, even think about that shot when we first meet Jar Jar where you can see the big the big tanks of the Trade Federation going through. And what are they doing? They're tearing down the trees as they're going through the forest. So, yeah, I think they're, I think it's a case where Phantom Menace is really playing with that, with that contrast. And I think another thing that's really, really interesting with Naboo, and I think it's maybe the first time we really saw that up to that point is Getting to see the relations and particularly the tensions in The Phantom Menace between the Naboo, the humans, and the Gungans. Because we really hadn't seen that up to that point. The notion of two species kind of cohabiting this planet and the way that they get on, or in the case of The Phantom Menace, the ways that they don't get on. Where you've got humans on the one hand, and then you've got this indigenous population on the other and you get to see, you know, sort of alluded to this long history of 
resentment and anger and the Gungans feeling like the Naboo are treating them as inferiors and think of themselves as superior and all that. And then ultimately the way that they have to kind of come together to battle the common enemy, the Trade Federation. I think that kind of story element in Phantom Menace is really, really important, really kind of adds something that we hadn't seen up to that point in Star Wars. And, you know, for a lot of people, and I would probably say this is myself included, Naboo is kind of the go-to planet in terms of if people ask, like, what Star Wars planet would you want to visit or which planet would you want to live on? Like, Naboo is right up there. I mean, it's among the few planets that won't kill you most most Star Wars planets, their environments will probably kill you eventually. Naboo seems fairly safe, minus the occasional, you know, <laughs> Trade Federation invasion. And then, of course, you know, when we, you know, stepping away from Phantom Menace and getting into, let's say, Attack of the Clones, we get to see even more of the planet and, and see even more of its, the scenery there. We get introduced to the lake country. We get to see the meadows where... Anakin and Padme are having their picnic and they're frolicking and all that. So we get to see other facets of the planet that really kind of reinforce the aesthetics and the beauty of the place. But at the same time as you got all that, where you've got this very pristine planet and these very peaceful people and all that, Naboo is also, crucially, of course, the birthplace of Palpatine, which again, I think is a really interesting dichotomy that this planet that is so peaceful and so beautiful and it's trying to stay out of conflict all that gives rise to the main villain of the saga this person who brings about so much death and destruction i think that's really really interesting i think a really key story point that was done there to make palpatine from this place that seems so antithetical to who he is that even a place like naboo can give rise to someone as evil as palpatine so yeah lots to Lots to love about Naboo. So yeah, that's Naboo in the number five slot. Moving on to number four. The highest ranking sequel trilogy planet on this list, Exegol. I really love Exegol. Exegol is my favorite sequel trilogy planet. I fell in love with it almost immediately. It's so cool. Yeah, if you, if you just think about that, what we see in the very opening minutes of The Rise of Skywalker when Kylo Ren shows up, everything that we're bombarded there, where you've got the temple that's on the surface of the planet, and then you've got all the ruins below it. You have those massive statues. I love the way that it plays with scale, where everybody who's walking through, whether it's Kylo at the beginning or Ray towards the end, is made to look and feel so small and insignificant in the midst of this massive space. I love the lightning, like I love the noise that it makes, that kind of screech. I think it's so cool and we we get to see all this again, those opening shots. We get to see all the Sith cultists and they're working on the various medical instruments. We get the Snoke vat again, kind of adding all of this mystery to it. And then of course the, the Sith throne room where we get the massive throne that was originally based off of concept art from the emperor's throne in the original trilogy and the whole stadium there where all the cultists are gathered. Yeah, I just love the look. It just feels like this ultimate sight of the dark side. And it feels very 
ancient and in so many ways a contrast to let's say a place like Octo where Octo itself is also very old it's you know it's believed to be one of the potential site for the first Jedi temple but you see it there and Octo is so aesthetically beautiful and you've got the caretakers and the ocean and all of that. And it feels very rich with life. You can have the porgs. But then you contrast that with Exegol, which is so deadened and barren and dark and all that. Again, it sort of sets up that contrast between the light side and the dark so well. And they're just, there's so many great shots in Exegol that we get in the Rise of Skywalker, like I'm thinking particularly, like one of my favorites is that shot that we see of when Rey first arrives and she's in her X-Wing and she's kind of flying amidst all of the, the Star Destroyers. Those are some great shots. Of course, the battle gives us a lot of great shots. The Palpatine with his big lightning firing on the entire Resistance fleet. There, there, there's so many, there's so much eye candy on Exegol and I absolutely love it. I love how, again, this is something I, I talked about Earlier with Kamina that also happens, where after the final order is defeated, what happens? The sun rises. There's all of a sudden light, again, symbolizing that change, the eradication of the evil in this particular case. A new dawn for the galaxy and all that. So, yeah, I just, I love everything about Exegol. It's such a cool place. And I'm just like, I just, I want Star Wars to give us more Exegol. You know, we've gotten some more of it lately in the latest Vader comics, we get to see Vader going there and him kind of discovering the early stages of what's going to become the final order. But I want us to go even further back in time. Take us into the High Republic period or Old Republic period. Give us stories. Tell us what's happening on Exegol hundreds of years before the Skywalker saga. I think there's there's so much more that can be told in terms of what was going on here and what was the importance of this place to the Sith. So, yeah, I really, really hope that we get more storytelling involving Exegol in the future, because I think it's just, it's such an awesome place. So, yeah, that is Exegol in the number four spot. Moving on now to number three. Coruscant. The entire planet is one big city, as Rick Oli tells us. In the Phantom Menace, Coruscant might be, and of course I've not clocked this, so I could be totally wrong about this, Coruscant may well possibly be the planet that we spend the most time on, I think, in Star Wars. I mean, particularly with the Clone Wars, if you think about just the number of episodes where there is something happening on Coruscant, I think if you add up all those minutes plus the minutes in the movies, it might be there. I think there's one possible exception that is further up on this list. But um, yeah, I think it might be Coruscant. I don't know. Yeah, again, much like with Naboo, it's very prequely. It's one of those planets that I just, when I think about the prequels and I think about prequel settings, I think about Naboo, but then I also think about Coruscant. I think much like Naboo, it's representative of the galaxy in this period before before the dark times, as Obi-Wan calls them in A New Hope, before the rise of the Empire, where you've got Naboo on the one hand, and it's this very lush and beautiful planet and very peaceful, but then you've also got Coruscant on the other end, it's this hustling and bustling metropolis, 
and there's lots of people and there's lots of activity. It, it gives you this idea. It gives you this feel of, oh, here is the galaxy and the kind of high. It's not quite the golden age because that's apparently, you know, the high republic period. And this is, you know, <laughs> this is right before everything becomes terrible. But yeah, all of the, the feel of course, I'm pretty much thrown into it in Phantom Menace. You get the sense of like, here, here's a lively place. Here's all this activity. Here's the center of the galaxy, the beating heart of the republic. So yeah, I, I, I like the kind of symbolism and the representation that it has there. I love the look of the Senate. I think the Senate is a really, really cool place and really cool design where you got the kind of rotunda design and the floating pods. I think that's a great, I think that's a great solution if, if you think about like the design challenge of, okay, you've got this site that's going to house all of these senators, these hundreds, potentially thousands of senators from all of these worlds. How is it going to function in terms of everybody being in this place and people getting to talk and such. So coming up with this idea of having the floating pods where a couple of senators can kind of just bob around in the middle and everybody else can see them. I think it's really, really ingenious from a kind of design perspective in that way. I like all the different facets of Coruscant that we get to see again over the course of the prequels and then also in Clone Wars in particular. You know, when we first see Coruscant in The Phantom Menace, we really see the upper levels, we get to see where the politicians are, and we get a little bit more of that in Attack of the Clones when we get to see where Padme lives. You know, the parts, of course, on the very high end and pristine, whether you're talking about a place like the Senate or the Chancellor's Office or even in the Jedi Temple, which, again, is a great design. You get to see this massive structure that it's got these five different towers, and it's kind of it's kind of standing on its own. There's not really anything around it that is... Of the same or greater height. I wonder. I wonder if the Jedi got some sort of special zoning law passed, where like theirs cannot be the only structure of their particular height within a certain distance, because it really kind of stands out in that way. So we, when we see Coruscant initially, we we get to see the kind of glitz and glamour side to it, but then particularly when we get into Attack of the Clones and then also in the Clone Wars, we get to see some of the lower levels where the the parts of Coruscant that are a little dirtier, a little shadier, more unsavory characters live down there. You know, you got the the Outlander Club in Attack of the Clones and the Clone Wars, you get level 1313. And so we get to see the kind of grimier parts of Coruscant where maybe the majority of the population lives or a large part of the population lives and all of these bounty hunters and other types of characters and all this crime and such is happening. And then, you know, another place that we get to see briefly at the end of Attack of the Clones, and again, I think a little bit in the Clone Wars 2 is also the work, so basically the industrial sector of Coruscant, where you've got all the factories and the big smokestacks and all that. I, I also like at the very end of Revenge of the Sith, I get, like getting to see the uh, the medical facility where where Vader is built. I think that's a really cool shot. And then also the shot of Coruscant reigning as Palpatine is flying in. I think that's some really, really cool aesthetics there. So in a lot of ways, I think in that way, Coruscant is reminiscent of a lot of real world big cities. So like a New York City or something like that, where you've got, you've got, you know, you've got your Empire State buildings and you've got Wall Street and you've got the places where the wealthy and the well-to-do live. But then you've got some of the the less glamorous parts of the city, too. So that contrast there, I really like seeing in Coruscant. I personally have never read Duel of Fates 
Chris Terrio's alternate script for Rise of Skywalker. Basically, all that I know of it is what I've learned about it secondhand from listening to podcasts and such. My opinion of Duel of Fates is that it's mostly bad. I think if we had gotten that movie, it would have been, for all the critiques that people have about Rise of Skywalker, I think we would have gotten not as good a movie if we had gotten Duel of the Fates. So I do not think that that's much of a loss. But among the few things of it that I do kind of like is that it would have taken us back to Coruscant. We would have gotten to see Coruscant in the sequel trilogy. Now, I don't think necessarily the fact that we didn't go to Coruscant is bad or is something that is a mark against the sequel trilogy movies, but it would have been kind of cool to see it and getting to see it in the state that it is because there is an idea from other kind of canon material that Coruscant kind of post the Empire and in the sequel trilogy period is no longer the place that it was in the prequels. It's no longer this kind of center of the galaxy. It's no longer this gleaming, shining, bustling city. It's kind of more run down. It's more of a dangerous place. It's lost a lot of its importance and its wealth and status. And so that would have been kind of cool to see in the sequel trilogy period, kind of see it on harder times, almost a la Rome after the fall of the Western Roman Empire as this place that was once great, that was the kind of center of the known galaxy, but has now since then kind of fallen into disrepute and to decay and decline. That would, that would have been kind of cool. I mean, if we if we had gotten that in the sequel trilogy, that would have been... It's not, it's not, the fact that we didn't isn't a critique or a knock against any of the movies or anything like that. But I think, yeah, I think that, that that's one idea from that script that like I, I might have pulled out and done something with. That would have been kind of cool. So yeah, that's Coruscant. So now, now we are at the top two planets. So now, number two. Lothal. <laughs> of course, there's a Rebels planet on this list. Are you surprised? Are any regular listeners of this show surprised that or Rebels planet is ranking this high? Maybe you're surprised that it's not number one. But uh, yeah, Lothal is number two. This is, yeah, this is the planet I was alluding to earlier. I think it's either between Lothal and Coruscant as the planet that we spend the most time on in Star Wars. Again, it might be Coruscant, I think might edge it out, but Lothal just, it is Rebels. Like, it's, it's so central to that story. And of course, I love Star Wars Rebels, so I gotta love Lothal. I could just think about that first shot that we get all the way in Spark of Rebellion with Ezra and his home kind of looking out into the distance, like him having his twin sons moment there. And then the way that it gets paralleled at the very end with Sabine being in that same place waiting for Ahsoka, that bookend there. It's such a fleshed out world, too, and that's something that I really, really like. Again, it might be one of, if not the most fleshed out world in Star Wars in terms of seeing all of the different places and getting to spend so much time in so many different facets of Lothal. Like, if you think about just like, let's say, the capital city, where arguably you spend the most amount of time, you've got, let's say, Old Joe's, you've got the cantina there. We get to see everything that happens in the Imperial complex. And the factories are there. We get to see Ezra's old home where he lived. The whole sewer system, what's happening down there. And then even beyond it, we get to see Tarkin Town. There's the Jedi Temple. There's all those aspects to it. Basically, the kind of surrounding 
wilderness or frontier or terrain, however you want to call it, of Lothal. As we get to see so many different facets of it, and I really, really like that. It's something that I also like with Coruscant. And once again, as with so many of the planets on this list, same like a Dagobah or a Camino or Geonosis, so much is done with nature. That's such a big part of Lothal and a big part of rebels and a lot of the symbolism and themes that it's dealing with. Like if you think about, let's say, the Jedi Temple that we get to see in seasons one and two, like the way that the Jedi Temple literally rises up out of the earth, it kind of spins corkscrew style up. It is a part of nature. And then everything with the loath cats and the loath wolves, even very early on in the show, but especially in season four, and that connection that Ezra has with them and the connection that the Lothwolves have to the Force. So all of that stuff, the way that there is this very, Lothal is this very spiritual place, the place where the Force kind of runs through nature and that connection there. And then also the way that the destruction of Lothal's nature is this kind of marker of imperial occupation. There's a time when Ezra comes back and he remarks on how much it's changed and he gets as he just all the pollution, all the smoke from the imperial construction. And then you have, you know, in season four, you have that whole episode that takes place on the imperial crawler and you see the way that it's kind of driving through nature and just torching everything and laying waste the nature of Lothal. And the ways that nature and Lothal fights back against the Empire with the Lothwolves and all that. So, yeah, again, playing into the nature-technology dichotomy. Like, Rebels is a lot with that in the context of Lothal. And then, you know, the other thing that makes Lothal so important is that it's not just, of course, Ezra's home. And that's why he wants to keep going back there and why he's ultimately so motivated to save it and liberate it from Imperial occupation. It's also this place to which the ghost crew themselves have this deep attachment. You know, Kanan has this line, I think it's in season four, where he talks about how they were coming to Lothal long before they ever met Ezra. So this notion that the force, that fate destiny is guiding them to this place. And the notion that the force has this really strong presence in a place like Lothal. I think, again, makes it such a compelling and interesting place. There's so much great story that happens there, particularly in season four, where season four almost happens entirely on Lothal. And we get all the stuff with Kane, and we get all the stuff with the world between worlds and all of that, and the ultimate victory over the Empire. It's just, yeah, I just absolutely love Lothal. I love the stories we get on there. I love the characters that we meet there, not just Ezra, but a lot of the other people on Lothal who live there who call it home, and even some of the Imperials too. I just, yeah, I, I, I couldn't, it, it couldn't not be one of my top planets. So yeah, given my deep love of Star Wars Rebels, I had to put Lothal there. But yeah, as you have noticed, Lothal may be high up there, but it is not the number one planet. It is not my number one favorite planet in Star Wars. So what is number one? The OG Star Wars planet, the Star Wars planet. If there's a bright center of the universe, you're on the planet that it's farthest from. I am referring, of course, to Tatooine. Yeah, I, I just couldn't not go with Tatooine. Maybe it's a surprise pick. 
But yeah, it's it's not much to look at. <laughs> it doesn't win a lot of points in the aesthetics department. It is not a planet I would want to visit or live on. It's frankly not even all that well explored in Star Wars storytelling. If you think about, you know, we go back to Tatooine a lot, but we usually go back to the same places, whether it's Mos Eisley or Mos Espa. I mean, you know, Mandalorian ended up being a, a kind of shocked everybody. I was like, oh, here's this place, Mos Pelgo. Here's this other part of Tatooine that we've never been to. Like, all the time that we've spent on Tatooine, for all the time that we spent on Tatooine in Star Wars, a lot of it's confined to a very small part of the planet. So a lot of it we just haven't really seen so far in Star Wars storytelling. But for all that, there's so much important stuff that happens there. It is the first Star Wars planet, and that's why it's number one. It gets all the points in the story department. Like, I, I, I don't have to, anyone who's listening to this podcast, I do not have to tell you how important Tatooine is, the story of Star Wars. It is, it is so, particularly in the Skywalker saga, it is synonymous with the Skywalkers. We get to see them. Several generations of Skywalkers having this connection to Tatooine, and then even just beyond the Skywalkers and the Skywalker saga, we see a lot of other really important and really great events and stories told that take place on this planet. So because it is impossible to fully capture and represent just what this planet means and all of the important things that happen on this planet, I, would, I decided I would do something heretofore unprecedented, which is I'm going to do the first ever ranking within a ranking, which is I'm going to give my top five Tatooine moments. So a list within a list. So I'm going to talk about just some of my favorite moments and scenes that take place on the planet Tatooine and Star Wars. So starting with number five. From the Mandalorian, it's the introduction of Cobb Vanth. It's that very first scene when Din shows up in the cantina and asks after the marshal and Cobb Vanth walks in. I really, really love this. I mean, there's a lot to love in the marshal. It's a great episode. It's a great you know, in terms of, again, Tatooine storytelling, there's a lot of great Tatooine storytelling that happens in this episode. But I particularly love this scene because, of course, it's the first time that we get to see Cobb Vanth brought into live action and what he looks like. And I really like the exchange and back and forth that he and Din have when Din expresses the shock after Cobb takes off the helmet and Cobb makes the comment about never having met a real Mandalorian and all that. And then Din insists on him giving back the armor and they have the kind of face off and all that. I really like that kind of initial introductory scene. I think it's, I think it's really well done. I think it introduces the character really well. I think there's a great bit of tension in there before it's kind of broken by the arrival of the crate dragon. So yeah, I really like that scene. I think it's a really good one and it's monk as it is on the list. It is one of my favorite Tatooine moments. Number four. Ray Skywalker, the very end, the final scene, at least so far in the Skywalker saga. Uh, before I, the Rise of Skywalker even came out, I had a feeling like among my predictions that I made for the Rise of Skywalker, almost all of them were wrong. <laughs> but the one that I for sure got right, which is that we would go back to Tatooine. And in fact, we did. And I really like that scene at the end of the Rise of Skywalker. I think it's really great. I like Ray going back there and getting to see the ruins of the homestead, basically seeing this place that had such great importance to 
not just Luke, but of course, Anakin also with what happens in the prequels and his mother and getting to see all that and seeing her burying Luke and Leia's sabers there. And then, of course, her taking on the Skywalker name there and then looking out to the to the twin sunrise and that kind of marking the next stage in her journey and her story. Yeah, I think it's really great. I think sort of it's it's Ray kind of cementing her bond to the Skywalkers before she does it literally by taking on the name, having that kind of symbolic connection and going back there. And you know, people have talked about maybe she should have gone to Naboo because it's this place that's, you know, important both to both to the Skywalker side of the family and then also to to the Palpatine and all that. And yeah, it would have been cool to see Naboo, but I do like that they went to Tatooine there. And I think it is a kind of nice it's a nice bookmark in terms of you know, Tatooine being the first planet and then also being the last planet. So, yeah. Number three. This is not so much a scene or a moment as it is basically an entire subplot of the movie, but it is the pod race in The Phantom Menace. I really love the pod race. I think the pod race is great. It is a lot of fun. One of the great things about the pod race is, apart from just the sheer spectacle of it, and just the fun and exhilaration of this race and seeing all these racers crashing and the fight between Sebulba and Anakin and all that. Like the pod race as a story device, the pod device manages to do what very few scenes in Star Wars manage to accomplish. There's only really a handful of others that do it quite as effectively, which is to establish connections with characters who are basically there and gone and you never see them again like you see them there for a few minutes or a few seconds you maybe catch their names maybe you don't and then they're just gone and they're they're dead or they're killed or you never get to see them in another context or another media you know i think the other scene that does this really effectively is the battle of yavin in star wars where you get to see gold leader and red leader and all the different pilots and people have different attachments to them. And, but then they're all picked off one by one. But even so, when that's a little amount of time, you, you get to establish that instant connection with them. And I think the pod race scene also does this really effectively where you get all the different racers. You got your Odie Mandrells, you get your rats Tyrell, the rats Tyrell, special, special blaze in my heart. Your dud bolts, your all the other ones who are basically there and gone, but you know people have their favorite pod races and their connection to them. Your Ben Cardinaros and all that. So yeah, I think it's, I think it it does that little bit of story work there really really well, and so I like that over and above. You know, apart from just the the sheer spectacle and the sheer fun of it, smack in the middle of this movie. So yeah, I think the pod races really really great it's really really exhilarating and it's just a great bit of storytelling there number two once again we're going back to star wars rebels we're going to twin sons specifically the end of twin sons the confrontation between obi-wan and maul I have ranted about this scene at some length. If you have not listened to it, go listen to my episode on love in Star Wars. There I go on a fairly protracted tangent that involves twin sons. And I talk about it a lot there. But I will just say here, it's just, it's such a great ending and epilogue to this 
extended rivalry that began in the Phantom Menace, and they got continued to flesh out in the Clone Wars. And then, yeah, comes this really, really poignant ending in Twin Suns, where you get to see this contrast between these two figures, where somebody like Maul or Darksider is stewing in anger and hatred and resentment against Obi-Wan, and he can't he can't escape it or doesn't want to. And then somebody like Obi-Wan who's saying, you know, look what I have risen above. You know, if you define yourself by your ability to to dominate, then you have nothing. This figure of the light, of the light side, this man who has had all of this trauma and hurt throughout his life, staring down this person who's responsible for a lot of that, the, the, the man who killed Qui-Gon, the man who killed Satine, and being able to confront him without any hatred or anger because he's he's risen above it he's moved on because that's what you, you 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 process it like you you feel the feelings but then eventually you you move to another place in your life you don't stay in that same place and that's Maul's shortcoming is that he stays in that place he never grows he never evolves he never changes and yeah obi-wan not confronting maul with anger or hatred the way that he did in Phantom Menace, but then only going on the attack once Maul threatens Luke. He's acting in a defensive gesture. And then ultimately, the way that he's able to both defeat Maul and then also ultimately able to comfort Maul in his dying moments. Again, this, this man who caused him all this pain, and he's able to give him this this hope by saying, there is this who Obi-Wan thinks is the chosen one, Luke, who will ultimately defeat Palpatine, who will bring an end to the Sith that was the, the source of so much pain and suffering for Maul. And of course, Maul continuing in his kind of tragic story, he can't understand that promise outside of the dark side framework because the last words are he will avenge us. So he can't understand Luke or the promise of the chosen one outside of the framework of vengeance. He's still stuck. So in that way, I think that that ending is also sad in that way. It, it, it's sad in the sense of like these two figures who have had such a long relationship and that coming to an end. But it's also it's got this more poignant, sad element where you see Maul, even in his dying final moments, he's still stuck. He just can't move on. So, yeah, for all those reasons, Twin Sons, second favorite moment, Tatooine. And then number one. My favorite Tatooine moment in Star Wars is also my favorite moment in all of Star Wars, in any piece of Star Wars media, movies, TVs, books, comics, whatever. It is Luke looking at the twin sons in A New Hope. This scene is just, it's just like, you know, when people talk about George Lucas creating Star Wars as this modern myth, you know, drawing from the, the Campbell idea of monomyth of, Basically, this universal storytelling that transcends time and culture and these themes and things that people can relate to regardless of where you live and when you live and all that. Luke and the Twin Sons for me is the 200 proof distillation of that. It is the purest form of this because it is – this is my contention. I will down this hill. I think everybody at one point in their life or another – 
is, has been, or will be Luke looking at the twin suns. Like that scene does so much power with silence. I mean, of course, there's there's the great music where you get the force theme in full blast. But in terms of the character himself, Luke is not saying anything, but he is saying so much just by the way that he's looking at the sunset and his body language and his face. There's so much being communicated there. And I think there's, I, th- I think everybody has that twin sons moment at one point in their lives where, where you're at a point and you don't know that you're at this turning point. You don't know that things are about to change forever. You're just basically, you're one step away from that you're one step before that but you're kind of looking at your life and you're just like is this it is, is this gonna be is today gonna be is every day gonna be like today is it just gonna be this forever and you don't know that just around the corner is the thing or the person or the whatever that's gonna completely take you on a different path and yeah i think that that is such a universal experience and I think George does appear in terms of capturing that universal human experience and speaking to those, speaking to something that everybody can, can connect to. I think Lucas does it here better than he does it anywhere else in Star Wars. I mean, he does it in other parts in Star Wars also really well, but this is, I think, the most effective moment. And that is why it is, as I said, both my top Tatooine moment and also my top Star Wars moment ever. I will never love a moment in Star Wars, a scene in Star Wars, more than I love Luke looking at the Twin Suns in A New Hope. I think it's absolutely wonderful. And, of course, the way that it has been used and the way that sunrise and sunsets have become this recurring motif in Star Wars is symbolizing these turning points for different characters. Again, that's a that's a whole other conversation. But, yeah, I like that, too. I like the precedent that it's set in that way. So, yeah, there you have it. There is my list of, my ranking of, my 10 favorite planets in Star Wars. So, yeah. As I mentioned, there's a lot of other planets that I did not get a chance to talk about. There's other planets that I really, really like and where you get some great storytelling. But I think, you know, these ones are are the ones that I have the, the strongest connection to and that I like the most. And that, yeah, I think give us some really, really great Star Wars moments in all of the trilogies and even beyond the movies and other media. So... Yeah, there you have it. So, what to expect on the next episode? Episode 30 will drop on November 29th. The show is officially entering the Dirty 30s. To ring in the show's 30s, I will be doing another franchise crossover episode. This time I will be talking about the 2016 Marvel movie, Doctor Strange. This is a movie that is near and dear to my heart in the Marvel Cinematic Universe. I have a very special love for this movie. And I think there are, there's a lot of great Star Wars stuff happening in there in terms of the storytelling and some of the themes that it engages with. And so I want to dig into that. And I will be doing it with a special guest joining me to talk about Doctor Strange will be none other than Alden Diaz of Octo Radio. So I am really, really looking forward to that conversation and for you to listen to us put our brains together and kind of talk about Star Wars and talk about Marvel and Doctor Strange. It is going to be a good one for sure. Until then, make sure you're subscribed to the show. Please rate and review the show if you're able to do so. If you're not already following the show on Twitter, you can do so at a larger view pod. You can also follow me on Twitter at Nemondum. And until next time, look for the force and you will always find it.